Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from uh, Matthew 16, the verses 21 through 28. You can find that in your pew Bibles on page 1524. Before we read, let's pray. Father in heaven, as we open your word, help us to open our ears and hearts and minds to hear your words to us and bless your servant as he expounds upon them for us. Amen. Page 1524, Matthew 16, verse 21. It's a section entitled, Jesus Predicts His Own Death. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Matthew 16 is both the highlight and the downfall of Peter's career as a disciple of Jesus before Jesus' death and resurrection. In Matthew 16, the verses just preceding the text that Joel read for us is that famous text where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. It reads this way, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? They, they replied, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. What about you, he said? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And, and Jesus goes on to bless Peter and say, on this rock I will build my church. Peter was the highlight of his career, and perhaps he was a little bit bold when he heard something next that came out of Jesus' mouth that he didn't really like. He thought he would take Jesus aside, take him by the shoulders, draw him away from the rest of the disciples, and give Jesus a teaching in theology. You see, Jesus, once Peter made that declaration that he is the Messiah, 
the anointed one, the one who would be the king of Israel, the hope of the Israel nation, that he was the hope of the world. Jesus didn't want them to get too far into the wrong idea of what kind of king Jesus was going to be. Jesus says, yes, I am the king, but not like you understand it. Verse 21 says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and on the third day raised from the dead. Not that he may be killed in the process, but that he must be killed. Jesus was heading to Jerusalem, and, and Peter knew that that was going to entail suffering, humiliation, and death. Also, almost not, not just for Jesus, but probably for his disciples as well. And when Peter hears this, and the rest of the disciples, they're furious. Why is that? Because Peter and the disciples had an agenda for Jesus. They wanted their king, they wanted Jesus to be the kind of king who would go into Jerusalem not to suffer and be humiliated and die, but to go into Jerusalem to rally a crowd, an army that would overthrow the religious and the political powers of that day, and so that Jesus could set up that kingdom, sit on the throne, and rule. And the disciples really wanted to be part of that plan, but not the plan that Jesus had. They really wanted to, to be part of Jesus' earthly kingdom, and a kingdom where they could rule with Jesus. In fact, the gospel talks about James and John, the son of, son of Zebedee, asking Jesus if they can sit at his right and left hand when he's going to install this earthly kingdom. The disciples wanted Jesus to fulfill their own agenda. They wanted the power, the victory, and glory. Yes, Jesus is going to come in power and victory and glory. But God's power and victory and glory is so much different than the way the world looks at it. Jesus says to Peter, yes, I'm going to be the king, but not, like, not a king like you have ever heard. I'm the king who's go who must die. But more than that, Jesus makes explicit what Peter implicitly understood. Since I'm a king on the cross, if you want to follow me, you must also go on a cross. Peter wasn't altogether comfortable with that. That's not what he signed up for. And to be honest, when we make a decision to, to follow Christ, some point in our life when we profess our faith, we know that or we, we don't expect and sign up for a humiliating death on the cross. That's not really what we're in it for. We want to be part of Jesus' glory like Peter does. But how much do we want to be part of Jesus' suffering and his death? The problem, the problem is that we're not centered on Jesus' kingdom. We have become self-centered. We have a tendency as human beings to reject God's rule over our lives. We want God to serve our agenda, not the other way around. This, this isn't how it always was. 
In Genesis 1 and 2, we get a story of a God, of God who created the world in which all relationships were whole, where God was king. We were created to exhibit true love, the true love that's, kind, that's found in the Trinity, where Father, Son, and Holy Spirit lived to glorify and love and serve each other in perfect community. Genesis 3, however, tells the story about how Adam and Eve and us through them decided that we would rather be our own king. We would rather orient our lives on ourselves. And the thing about this self-centeredness is that it destroys relationships with God, with each other, and with ourselves. Self-centeredness is the opposite of true love. A self-centered person wants to be the center around which everything else orbits. As a self-centered person, I might want to help people because it makes me feel good. I might have friends, I might fall in love as long as my needs are met and my individual interests are not compromised. Self-centeredness turns everything into a means for our own ends. And sometimes, if we're honest, we can turn our faith, into a God, faith in God into a means to serve our own ends. We may believe that being a Christian means that a certain lifestyle, or, or we might have a certain lifestyle or a trouble-free life, or by doing good works and worshiping God, that God somehow owes us one. Or maybe we're just in it because we think that if we believe in Jesus, we can live however we want to as long as we get eternal life in the end. But that's not how it works. The problem with the self-centered life is that it doesn't work at all. Self-centeredness leads to the breakdown of relationships with God, with each other, and ourselves. How many of you have... Uh, had a conversation where, you, where you're five minutes into it and you haven't had a chance to say anything because you realize that the person that you're talking to is completely self-absorbed. I mean, that's not a very flattering type term. Being self-absorbed, and sometimes I, I have those conversations and, you know, I try to make the best thing out of it and I see how long I can go without actually saying a word. And sometimes it can be up to 20 minutes. When you're with someone who is self-absorbed, you realize that everything in their life is about them. There's, there's good news for you. I, I looked up this morning on the internet just out of curiosity, but there's a lot of steps on how to deal with a self-centered or self-absorbed friend. Wicca how is your, is, your, is your friend in this matter. It can tell you how to deal with a self-absorbed friend. But kidding aside, self-absorption doesn't doesn't make us happy, does it? When you, talk, when you listen to someone who's self-absorbed, they're not usually happy with the, thing, the way things are. They're usually complaining. And that self-centeredness, we come to realize that actually all of us can be quite self-absorbed. Maybe we don't, we, we can hide it a little bit better when we're talking to others, but really it comes out in the way we think, in the way we look at the world, and we want to make it all about ourselves. 
This self-centeredness leads to the reason why we have wars in the world, why we have class struggles, why marriages fall apart. Self-absorbed people aren't happy. Jesus says, what good will it be for you if you gain the whole world yet forfeit your soul, your identity, your personality, your selfhood? What could you possibly trade for the way that God created you to be? Jesus has good news. It's hard news, but he's got good news for us. He's got a solution to the problem of self-centeredness, and it's death. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. Jesus' solution is direct and painful, but yet it's incredibly rewarding. This is good news. Jesus is looking for followers, people who will join his kingdom. Don't follow Jesus if you think it's going to be convenient for you. Don't follow Jesus if you're going to use him as a means to your ends. Don't expect that it will lead to power or privilege in this world, because it won't. Jesus is not a shortcut success to success. Jesus, following Jesus, is finding our road to the cross. And the most basic demand that Jesus makes of anybody who would be his disciples would that they would make a decision, a radical, unqualified decision to follow him. There's going to be a battle inside of us as Christ followers. If we choose to follow Christ, our natural way of being to orient the world around ourselves is not going to go down without a fight. There's going to be a battle within us. The kingdom of me versus the kingdom of God. We can either live according to one kingdom or the other, but not both. We can, we can live by the world standards that build your kingdom for yourself. We can try to earn our value, our sense of who we are, by having a fulfilling career that gives us money or reputation and status. Or we could try to listen to the world and, and build a kingdom for ourselves by having a family that lifts us up. Those are our options. Or we can turn and build our identity on Christ. There's no other way. You either build your own kingdom in this world or you, build a, or you work for the kingdom of Christ. As long as we are in this world, as long as we are followers of Christ, this battle takes place within us and it won't go away. The choice is either Jesus is Lord of my life or I am Lord of my life. And the decision has to be so radical that it may involve turning one's back on their relationships, on those people and those things that they love most. And for Jesus' followers, this, is, this has always been a real thing. I, I, if I have the opportunity to put a plug in for a book I've read recently, it's called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. It's by Nabil Qureshi. It's, it's a great book about how Nabil, who was raised in, an, in a Muslim family, and he was a devout, a zealous Muslim, how he encountered and made friends with a devout Christian, and how that relationship changed his life. 
And as a result of eventually choosing to follow Christ, sorry if I gave away part of the book, but that, that is what happens. He chooses to follow Christ. As a result of that, he, ha- he alienates himself from his family. And in that book, you get to hear the pain of how, how painful that is to follow Christ and how it meant, meant giving up his family. When we follow Jesus, all of our affections, our passions, those things that we love in this world are up on the table, up for grabs. Whether it's our work, whether we love being in nature, whether it's our art, whether it's our video games, all these things take a secondary role in our lives when we choose to follow Christ. I think of the Old Testament story of Abraham and Isaac, where God made all kinds of promises to Abraham that through your son Isaac, I will bless the world. And when Isaac was born, Abraham was old enough to be his grandfather. And Abraham held that boy in his arms. And scripture makes a point of telling us how much Abraham loved Isaac. But, I, but God saw that Abraham was making an idol out of Isaac. That Isaac, this little boy, as he was growing older and older and becoming a man, grew and grew within Abraham's heart to the point where God said, take your son, your only son, and bring him to a mountain where I will show you and offer him as a sacrifice. Now we're, we're spared the pain that Abraham went through in scripture. But I, I imagine that there's nothing worse in life, no greater cost to give. But God asks Abraham of that. In the end, Abraham is willing to sacrifice his son, and it's difficult, but God doesn't ask that of him. God, once God sees that Abraham has let go of Isaac as an idol in his heart and is choosing to follow him instead, God stops Abraham, and God fulfills his promises through him. How is it possible for us to live a life like Abraham and to put some, put all the things that we love on the line for God? How is it possible to give up our lives to follow Jesus? The good news about our king is that we don't just have a king who's far off somewhere giving us orders from a, a powerful throne that knows nothing about our lives. We have a king who chose to suffer to be humiliated, to die on the cross for us. When we look at the cross of Jesus, we begin to be transformed. 1 John 3.16 says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Jesus wants us to start looking to him and to his cross to know true selfless love. Once the cross, once the sacrifice of the wonderful cross becomes a part of us, not just in our minds, but in our, cry, in our hearts, when we realize that Christ suffered humiliation and death for us, we encounter true love. We encounter the greatest love that there ever was. We begin to realize how far God went 
for us to redeem us and we become changed. We are freed no longer to build our own kingdom, no longer to build our own identity because we know that only leads to futility. We no longer have to value our bank account, our popularity, our achievements because in Jesus Christ we find that we have our true identity, our true value in God who died for us so that we can be freed and empowered to live for the kingdom of God. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. The cross has to shape our everyday lives. The cross is not just a burden. Sometimes we we talk about everybody has their cross, as if caring for someone in our family or, or having a really lousy job fulfills what it means to have a cross. Cross is not just a burden. It's a means of death. Death to our, to our self, to our personal ambition, to our self-centered purpose. When Jesus came to establish, he came to earth, he came to establish a kingdom, a kingdom of selflessness, of love, of hope, and peace. And when we look at the cross, when we see what Jesus did for us and what Jesus was doing when he said, good news, the kingdom of God is here, and how he is inviting us to participate in a life of love, in a life of hope and real joy, we can begin to turn our lives, we can begin to sacrifice what our lives would have been without God and to take what Christ is giving us instead. And we take our lives and we build that on the kingdom of God. The kingdom that turns the self-centered values of the world against itself on its head. Now Jesus, when he preached about this kingdom, wasn't very popular for it. The political leaders and the religious leaders came together to overthrow him and to kill him. And when we follow Jesus and serve him, when we serve his kingdom and live into his, and orient our lives around that kingdom, we will find that our lives will be at odds with the world around us. It's a very real thing that there's, there's Christians around the world who daily risk their lives to be a Christ follower. Now, we're not in that same situation here in Canada. Thankfully, we live in a place where we have freedom to worship God. Maybe that won't always be the case, but for now we do. But at the very least, our lives will be radically at odds with our neighbors, with the people that we work with, with those around us. If your life looks no different than your non-Christian neighbor, if, you, if your values, if the way that you make decisions is the same as your non-Christian le- uh, neighbors, then maybe, maybe there's an opportunity for you to realize that you have to turn back to Jesus and ask him how we should orient our lives and how the kingdom of God can shape our values. You might find that when the kingdom of God takes over your life, that maybe you'll take, maybe you'll make a a career decision that's not based on money. You might take a lower paying job because the work better aligns with the kingdom of God. When the kingdom of God takes over your life, you might choose to live in a place that you don't want to live. Maybe in an impoverished neighborhood downtown because you want to be the presence of God in that place. 
when the kingdom of God takes over your life and asks you to, to take up your cross, that might mean putting to death the idols that we have, our high-paying job, our, our, our love for things, our love for praise, devoting our time and energy instead to perhaps a matter of justice in our community, or opening our home and our wallet for inhospitality to people who we might not get along with normally. The kingdom of God will transform you. The weight of what Jesus is saying is that each and every day we are to choose to follow him and not let ourselves back into our worldly, selfish ways of thinking and living. Follow me, Jesus says. And when Jesus uses that command, follow me, it's an ongoing command. Luke's gospel says, take up your cross daily. It's something that we have to remember each and every day to turn to Christ. We must ask ourselves today, am I orienting my life? Am I building my sense of identity on, on who likes me at work or how popular I am or how much weight I've lost or how much money I make? Or am I building my identity on Jesus Christ? the king who showed me perfect love when he came and died on the cross. One of the ways that, that, one of the gifts to the church that Jesus gives us is the practice of repentance. And that's a, that's a foreign word to us. We don't talk about repentance very much. But repentance literally means to turn around, to turn our lives around. And repentance is a daily practice. And it involves two things. It involves turning away from something, but turning towards something else. I, I think of, uh, one, of my, one of the examples that helps me understand this the, be the best is observing some of my siblings who've uh, tried to quit smoking over the years. I know that you probably don't know too many smokers, but when you're wrestling with smoking, from what I hear, it's really, really hard. It's an addiction. It's something that holds on to you. It's a, it's a way that you can relieve stress in your life. It's a way to provide comfort and a sense of security when you have a cigarette. But if you want to quit smoking, that might be the hardest thing that, that, that's a lifelong battle. In fact, a lot of people who smoke quit smoking many, 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 many times. The thing with smoking, you have to have something that you're turning towards. You can't just turn away from smoking. You have to have a goal in your mind. If you want to quit, you have to have, what it, whether it is better health for your life, a longer lifespan. I mean, those are good reasons in them, themselves. I've heard of people who, who quit because they're interested in someone who is really against smoking. And maybe that would be a good motivation to quit smoking. But if you're going to turn away from it, you also have to turn towards something better. You have to realize what promises are in store. In the same way, we are addicted to our lives, to building our own kingdoms. And we know it's destructive to us. But if we are going to make a difference in our life, if we are going to let Jesus shine on our lives, we have to turn and face him and turn our backs on everything else. 
This is this practice of repentance. And I, and I want to make this point too. It's, it's an individual practice, but it's also a communal practice. There are times when, when the church has to, as a community, take time to repent. There's times when the church seeks to use all of its resources to build its own kingdom, to preserve its own self-interest. There's times when the church, which Christ designed to be a foretaste and a sign of the kingdom of God in the world, instead turns its back on the world and serves its own interests. And there's, there's an opportunity for the church to communally repent and to turn its way back to God. Enough said about that. In conclusion, Jesus, Jesus ends his text by saying, Truly I tell you, some of you, some who are standing here will not taste death before, we, before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What does this mean? Some point out that Jesus and his disciples thought that Jesus was going to return, that the second coming was going to happen within their generation. But this passage has been cherished for so much longer than the first generation after Christ. What, what it means, what this verse means, that, we, that some of you will see the kingdom of God coming before you taste death, is that while the kingdom of God starts in weakness, while the kingdom of God starts on the cross, it does not end there. The disciples see the power of the resurrection. They see the outpouring of the church at Pentecost. They see the explosive expansion of the church to the ends of the earth. They would see the power of God transforming this world into kingdom citizens. And for us, the kingdom of God starts with weakness. It starts with admitting that we are sinful, we are bent on ourselves, and we need a savior. It begins with giving up and relinquishing the rights to our life and giving that up to Jesus, even though we are powerless to do so. It's admitting that all we can do is cry out, Lord, have mercy on me. But while it starts in weakness, it doesn't end there. Someday Jesus will return and ushered in a renewed creation. And in our lives, we already see the kingdom of God taking root. When you live for the kingdom, you will begin to see the glory of Christ transforming lives around you and transforming your own life. Someday Jesus will come and make all things new. And then we will see the power and the fullness and the maturity of the kingdom of God here on earth. And we will see love and life completely triumph over selfishness and death. In closing, I want to quote, read a few verses from C.S. Lewis' Mere Christianity. I've been rereading that book recently, and it's been such a refreshing perspective on our faith. So I want to quote C.S. Lewis here in closing. He says, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, to death of your ambitions and your favorite wishes every day and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being 
and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But if you look for Christ, you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. This is the good news of the kingdom of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to submit our lives to you. We've tasted and seen the goodness of your kingdom. We've tasted and seen what joy and hope and love and life full life really is. But yet, God, our hearts are weak. And, and we often choose to turn from you, to turn our lives from your good, beautiful kingdom, from the good and beautiful life that you've designed for us to live, a life where all relationships are whole. God, help us. Help us to look on the cross. Help us to see the glory of your death and your resurrection. Help us to see how far that you went from heaven here to earth to the cross to deal with us, to redeem us, to make us whole. Lord, give us the, the power each and every day to turn away from our former way of living and to turn towards you. We pray this in the power of the Spirit. Amen.